fitting to wear both hats here. <laughs> and we're going to begin, oh sorry, we're going to continue through our series on the Psalms that we started calling Summer in the Psalms. Um, and as Pastor Sean explained last week, one of the reasons we're doing that is because people tend to miss weeks in the summer, <laughs> as you can tell. And so uh, as we go through the Psalms, it's not detrimental to a specific series to miss one week or the other. But I'd love if you could turn with me as we uh, look through Psalm 4. Um, this is around one of 65 psalms of lament found in our book of Psalms, um, depending on how you count, around 65, uh, where David, the psalmist, cries out in the midst of various trials. Now, and as Pastor Sean emphasized last week, David was a real person. And that's something I want us to remember as we think through and try to to understand what David is going through, he was a real problem, or, or sorry, a real person with real problems and, uh, and real feelings as well. And since we too are real people with real problems and real feelings, I know and trust that we can greatly benefit from David's example of crying out and receiving peace from the Lord as recorded for us here in sacred scripture. So let's read. Psalm 4. Psalm 4 says, To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who will say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So the question I want to look at today, the question I want to examine is, how is it possible in the midst of life's various trials to say with David, I have joy and I have peace? Spoiler alert, <laughs> this is where we're working to. By understanding that we rest in the arms of a God who is infinitely greater than our biggest problem, than our biggest problems, and that God works all things for the eternal good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So how do we respond biblically in the light of trial, in the light of this truth that we've just looked at? How do we move from the natural distress felt and caused by life's trials to supernatural peace and supernatural joy brought about by God. You know, I was thinking as I, I wrote this, how many here, of you here have stubbed your foot before or, uh, or like stepped on a perfectly placed Lego in the middle of the night? <laughs> I think we can all identify with one of those. And our initial, <laughs> you and I's initial reaction is not to quickly open up to the book of James, which we went through, and, and begin to contemplate, hmm, how do I count this as joy? 
how is this trial working for my good? No, that's not our, our initial reaction. It's not our natural reaction. Our initial reaction is to grab the injured foot or, or member or finger and shout, Ow! At least I, I hope that's ever what everyone here would, would shout. <laughs> and that's okay because it's natural to hurt. It's natural to feel pain and it's natural to cry out in response. In fact, that's how God created us to respond. It would be unnatural to do otherwise. In, this, in life, we have trials and we have pain. And we can't change those. We can't avoid that. But what we can do is change how we respond from our natural response to a, a biblical um, response. So let's take a look uh, piece by piece through chapter 4, verse by verse, and, and kind of examine David's path of crying out as he go, or his path as he goes from, from crying out from distress to receiving joy and peace, to experiencing the joy and peace of God. And I want to start first, we have that, uh, that superscription that is in many of the Psalms. Um, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. And I thought this was interesting because it's, it's easy for us to just kind of ignore those or write those off or just kind of think of them as an editor's note that the, the modern day translators put in. Um, but to the, the uh, but though, yeah, there's debate on whether they were added later or not. But either way, within our tradition, we can within the tradition of how the Bible has been preserved and kept, we can know that these are also a part of inspired scripture. These superscriptions, and so I want you to notice that the Psalm of David was given as a song to the choir master, and maybe that sticks out to me because <laughs> I I lead worship, I lead the music. Um, but it, it, it kind of takes us aside a second to, um, or it takes a second to be like, well, what does that mean? What's, what's the point? Uh, why does he give it specifically as a worship song? And I think one of the reasons that he does that is that he emphasizes this is to be taken as a song of worship, is that musical worship, as we know, is not just the entertainment portion of the service. It has a unique way of taking God's truth implanting it deep in our hearts and minds. As we know, music has the amazing ability to change our affections, to, to change our hearts and our desires. And we understand the effect that music has on us. As we just sang uh, these last songs, it takes those truths and it puts them in a, in a, uh, a type of beauty. It, it makes them affect us in a way that words alone don't, or don't necessarily. So the first words of David's song, psalms are, are penned in a time of distress, and we know that music can especially help us in times of distress. So to move on to verse 1, um, he says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And right away, I'm actually going to take this off. It's really warm in here. <laughs> I don't think anyone will... Uh, Fault me for that. Let's uh, place this back here. <laughs> um, right away, the scenes laid out before us as David the psalmist, through prayer, comes before the heavenly throne room of God. In a sense, laying his case out before the judge. He says, 
Answer me when I call. Hear my case, O God of my righteousness. He's basically saying, answer my call. God, hear my case that I'm bringing before me. He says, God, you have seen that in this case I am righteous, that I am innocent. And we, see, we may be tempted to, to say to David, as we, we look on through the rest of the verse, we may be tempted to say, well, what's the big deal, David? Haven't you heard? <laughs> People are just, it's just lies, it's just words. Haven't you heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Well, whoever coined that phrase obviously hadn't grown up with anyone, any siblings. They probably hadn't got married. They probably just hadn't even gone to second grade. Because anyone who has gone through those things, who has had interactions with people, know the, uh, the detriment that negative words can have upon us. In fact, Psalm, or Proverbs 18, verse 21 says that in the power of the tongue... Uh, is life and death, that life and death are in the power of the tongue. And so as we look through this, uh, as we look through this distress, we don't want to uh, kind of play it off as not that big of a deal. We want to realize that David's response is a model of, uh, David's response to this trial is a model for us within each of our trials as well, because this is, uh, it is a trial. Um, there's trials of various kinds in the Psalms. Sometimes He's being attacked physically. In this case, um, while that may be a variable, this case it is specifically focusing on um, these vain words and these lies that are being spoken about him. And so as we look, for, or look through this, we should model David's response here um, to cast our burdens before the Lord, the Lord who is said as the, the El Shema, the God who hears. David says, Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. He says, you've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. You know, David has hope that God would hear and respond to his present case because, as he says, God had done it time and time before. And in this way, as he, as he looks forward to, as he hopes for God's response, it's not a hope that's like a vain hope in the same way I would say, well, I, I really hope it's sunny tomorrow, or I really hope that it would be cooler tomorrow, I guess in this case. Um, it's a biblical hope. And biblical hope is the confident assurance that God gives attention to our prayers, just as he had done for those in Christ who have come before for thousands of years before us. David looks to the future with hope because he looks back and remembers God's faithfulness in the past. And it's worth noting that in the Bible, one event, the Exodus, was recounted over and over again to God's people for thousands of years after it happened, as a reminder that he would never leave them or forsake them. I've often been given advice from other godly saints that in times when I've clearly seen God's faithfulness, where he answered my prayer in a way that was undeniable, I should find a specific way of commemorating that event. By seeing and remembering the past, we'll grow in assurance of God's present and future faithfulness towards us, towards his people, just as they were reminded of the exodus of God's faithfulness over and over again. We can be reminded not only of God's faithfulness shown in the Bible, but of God's faithfulness as we've seen it played out in our own lives 
personally as well. In verse 2, he goes on um, to say, it's almost as if he takes the stand to testify, to bring his case before God the judge. And David directs his attention towards his persecutors, saying, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? We can sense David's emotional distress over these lies as he laments, how long? And you hear this, this echo of what's often in the Psalms, this phrase, how long, O Lord? And anyone who has endured times of trial, who have gone through distress and hardship, have probably thought this or said this in some way or shape of how long, O Lord. David says in, in a similar way in, in Psalm 13, 1 through 2, he cries out, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? Like, that's the funny thing about the Psalms, is sometimes David says things where we're like, are we allowed to say that? Like, should we, can, can we ask God, will you forget me forever? I mean, we know the answer to that. But in his distress, this is how he's feeling. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be, shall my enemy be exalted over me? And again, one may be tempted to think, like, David, what are a few lies compared to other times in your life when you're, people are literally trying to kill you? But if you've ever had someone spread lies about you, saying you did what, in fact, you did not do, or maybe saying you did not do something that you did, um, or maybe lying about your character, exaggerating your faults, um, the, the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, becomes really silly. Because we understand the, the real damage that our words can have in negative times. The phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, could be followed up, but um, sticks and stones, uh, where am I at? Um, the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words uh, can never hurt me, could actually probably better be followed up by sticks and stones may break my, my bones, but words can damage reputation, relationships, and trust. We often don't realize the destructive power of even the smallest lie, of even little negative comments that we can make towards people. And God hates lying so much that out of ten commandments that he gave the nation of Israel, do not lie was one of them. And Proverbs 12:22 says, The Lord detests lying lips but he delights in people who are trustworthy. This isn't a small matter that David's going through, and I hope that we're kind of seeing that, um, and it'll give us a better understanding of what he's going through. Um, verse 3, he, he continues on. He says, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call. You know, the sin becomes even greater, the sin committed against David, in light of chapter 3, when you take into account that their offense is against God and God's anointed, one set apart by him. Now, I've done a lot of running and hiking in the woods recently, uh, in the summer, and I've come across bears a total of three times. The first time, I came around a curve, and there in front of me was a nice little black bear. 
he stared at me, I kind of stared at him, I like clapped, I was like, hey, and he ran away. And I really wasn't that nervous, it didn't really scare me that much, it was fine, he didn't care about me, I didn't bother him. The second time I was running, and all of a sudden a little black bear comes running out in front of me and starts running down the trail like he thought that I was chasing him, apparently. (laughs) And I'm really glad that he kept running because I couldn't really beat him in a race, much less in a fight. (laughs) I'm glad that he kept going his way and I kept going my way. But the third time, the third time was a little different. About 20 yards in front of me as I'm hiking, a little bear cub comes running across the trail. And yes, he was quickly there and quickly gone. He was only there for a second. But this time I responded differently. Even though he was, he was not really much of a threat, I turned around and ran back where I came from. And why is that? Was I, did I feel threatened by the little bear cub? No. Obviously the danger, the fear I had, was not in the bear cub itself, but in the mama cub, who, or sorry, the mama bear, who was most likely not far behind. And for this reason, for the same reason that this bear cub is scary because of the mama protecting it, for this reason, persecuting God's people should give people uh, great fear because of the God that stands behind them. For this reason, you don't want to mess with those who God has set apart for himself, his children or his elect those whom he has chosen as his own, whom he has set his favor on. Imagine what would happen to me if I got close, anywhere close to that little cub. They would pick me up in pieces later. (laughs) And if a bear can so effectively defend its cub, how much more will the Lord come to the defense of his children? Luke 17 verse 2 gives us some idea. It says, it would be better for him If a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. God hates sin, and we know that, but he especially hates sin against his chosen people. So why do I say all this? What's what's my point? What am I getting at? Well, first of all, Christians and non-Christians alike need reminded, as you... um, To do as to God's people, oh sorry, Christians and non-Christians alike need reminded that you do to God's people as you do unto him. And second, for the comfort of the believer. One of the ways that we see how much God loves his people is by observing how severely he responds to those who would try to harm his people. He loves us so much that he promises that the sin committed against you will not go unpunished. It will either be punished by Christ on the cross or by their own eternal judgment. In verse 4 and 5, he calls them, David calls these persecutors, these opponents, to repentance. He calls them to repent and to turn from their ways and to trust in the Lord. He says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. He's like, think about it. Think about what you're doing. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. I want us to remember that this admonition, um, this this reminder is to Christians as well. So don't tune out as we're going through this passage because Christians need to repent as well, even after we've been saved 
um, by the blood of Jesus. So let's take a look at this piece by piece. I think the verse that sticks out when you read this the most is this verse, be angry and do not sin. Like, well, what does this mean? Is he commanding us to, to be angry? Well, in a sense, yes. The Hebrew, word, the Hebrew word used here is reges, and it means to quiver, and especially to quiver with any violent emotion, especially anger or fear, to be afraid, to stand in awe, to quake, or to rage. In this case, it's used to describe a form of righteous anger, anger over their own sin, over our own sin. Recognizing the seriousness of sin as well as whom sin is against should cause us to rage, to, to quiver, to quake, and to stand in awe as we realize the severity of sin and God's wrath towards unrepentant sinners. So what can be done? Well, repenting of sin means, the, means first to recognize sin and then confess it by name and then to turn from it. Furthermore, as Ephesians describes to us, as Paul, speaks, uh, Paul describes to us in Ephesians, he says, you are not only to put off the old, but to put on the new. And the put on command in this passage is to offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. So he says, put off, put off the sin of what you're doing. Think about the seriousness and the severity of it and change what you're doing. He's basically saying that you need to get things in order. You need to get right with God. Do what you need to do to take, uh, do what you need to do. Take the right steps to get things right with the Lord. And how glorious it is that the Bible gives us this step-by-step, this, -step, this explanation of how we can get right with God through repentance. And Matthew, 20, or Matthew 12, verse 31 says, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Psalm 145, 8-9 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. I love the line, um, I guess you would probably, most people probably wouldn't know the song, but there's a really good line that says, there is no sinner beyond the stretch of his infinite mercy. Verse 6 goes on to say, there are many who will say, who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In saying there are many who will say, show us some good. Or who will, who, there are many who say, who will show us some good. David acknowledges that it's really easy in times of deep trial to fall into despair. It seems like everything around you in life becomes a burden. And it's hard to see anything good. It's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. It seems that life is crumbling down around you and you are alone in it. In the words, life is, uh, life, oh, sorry. In the words, lift up the, the light of your face upon us, we hear reference to the, the blessing in, in Numbers 6, 24 through 20, or 20, uh, we see the re reference to the ironic blessing of Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
Yet there's times when it feels like things are quite the opposite. It feels as if instead of receiving blessing, we receive the curse. We receive the opposite of the blessing. It doesn't feel like the Lord's face is shining upon us or that he's being gracious to us. It doesn't feel like his countenance, his smile is upon us. And instead of peace, we experience great distress, anxiety, and frustration. It feels like we're being warred against day in and day out. It feels like things just go from bad to worse to worse. We've all had times in our lives where this has been true to, one, to some extent, to one extent or another. I know there's many out here, um, many in this room, who are especially going through this right now. Yet in the midst of this, what does David say? He says in verse 7, You have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and went... Uh, then they, when, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And our reaction to that is like, is joy? Like, joy, David? What are you talking about? Don't you see what they're saying about you over there? Have you not heard the lies they have spread about you and are still spreading about you? Don't you know that many of those people over there probably want you dead? Well, it goes so much against human nature for us to be able to say that even in the midst of these dark trials, that we can have joy. It's so unnatural for him to be able to say that. And not only like just a little bit of joy, but joy described as being greater than the fleeting pleasures of this world, greater than food and drink, um, better than your dream job, a perfect spouse, friends, entertainment, land, or wealth. Those things aren't bad. They're not wrong in and of themselves. In fact, they're often blessings from God. But they're not where David found his joy. David elaborates um, this joy that he has in Psalm 16, 8 through 11. He says, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David has true joy that comes only by faith. He receives joy knowing that God is with him. God is for him even when it feels like everything is against him. God will not abandon him. God will not leave him. God will guide him step by step into eternal glory where he will receive a reward for his suffering. So how does David end the psalm in verse 8? He started off in distress, crying out to the Lord. And he, he's come to the point where he has joy, and he finishes it off with saying that he also has peace in the midst of his trial. But we say, hold on a, mate, uh, hold on a minute, David. Um, what about those people who have been shaming about you and lying about you? They're still out there. I don't see any change in your situation. 
what's changed? Not his circumstances, but David himself. He says, in peace, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for, for you alone, O God, make me dwell in safety. It's clear that David's joy and his peace were not, a de- were not dependent upon a change in his circumstances. His peace and rest came from the understanding that he dwells safely within the arms of a sovereign God, and that he dwells within the sovereign plan of God. This is the purpose, uh, this is the purpose, gives purpose to our suffering and gives us joy in the midst of our trials, knowing that God does not let our trials go to waste. And again, it still hurts. We don't have to pretend that we're happy, happy, happy all the day because in reality, we often aren't, especially in those times. But we do have to remember that God hears us. He knows us and he fights for us. So we need to daily, hourly, moment by moment, remember and be reminded to cast our burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain us. I want to finish by singing the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. So if you'll stand, we'll finish in musical worship.